OT Geniuses. My name is Jessica Lopez Hermanton, and I am the creator and founder of OT Genius. And you're listening to Pre-OT Secrets. On this show, we talk about how to get into occupational therapy school, how to do it in the most financially savvy way. And we also dive into the stories of pre-OTs, current OT professionals and students to learn how they got in and what their experiences were like. And so we're here to inspire, motivate, and encourage you throughout your OT journey and show you how you can be a successful OT school applicant and become the OT that you want to be. Now, on to the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to part two of another Pre-OT Secrets episode. We have Michelle De Jesus on again. If you did not listen to part one of our interview, I really highly suggest that you do just so you can learn a little bit about her, her story and how she became an OT and what drew her to OT and some really critical things that I think can help you in your decision. But we are back again. And so hello again. How are you today? (laughs) (laughs) I'm great. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) So I know that one of the things that we as OTs of color, we want to see more is more OTs of colors ourselves. Mm -hmm. We want to see this be reflective in our profession and within our universities. And so I wanted to invite you and talk about that a little bit more. And so I'm just going to go out there and ask, uh, like, what are some things that you think universities, professional organizations can be doing to basically help create that, you know, like start creating more access for students of color to get into occupational therapy programs? I love this question. So thank you for asking me this question (laughs) because I am super passionate about this area and there's so many things that we can do collectively as practitioners, as organizations, as, you know, employers, as so many different perspectives you can take to address this issue because it is an issue that's going on right now. But I think to be able to fully answer that question, I think we need to take a step back and kind of address why diversity is important to begin with. And when I'm saying diversity, I'm not just thinking about demographics. So we're not talking about racial demographics. We're thinking about people's different lived experiences. You know, we can talk about so many different ways that we're different. So, you know, just to name a few, like sexual orientation, we can talk about economic background. We can talk about, you know, where exactly they live, intellectual interests. There's so many different ways that we can talk about diversity and racial diversity is one component, but I think it's a very important one because there's a lot of correlations that exists with racial diversity and different racial groups, right? And when we're talking about the OT profession, it's one of those professions that when we're talking about racial diversity, there's not a lot of it, right? So there's study after study and different demographic statistics that show that we are very poorly diverse in terms of race, where we're still predominantly female-dominated and you know white profession in general. I think the statistic recently was like 80 some percent, 85, 84, where, you know, we really are minoritized as groups. If you're Hispanic, Latino, if you're Black, if you're American Indian or Asian, we're really the minority in this profession. And I like to say minoritized and not minority because of language, right? Like it's 
you don't want to feel inferior because you're a part of a specific racial group where really it's just we've been minoritized, where there are barriers that exist for these racial groups that don't necessarily allow us into these spaces. So that's a, a little shift in the framework where, you know, I think as we evolve and as our profession, our language evolves, those are things to consider where we don't and we shouldn't always accept the status quo and how things have always been. So back to the original question is why diversity is important to begin with. Well, there's a lot of studies that show that, first off, the United States um, in particular is growing more and more diverse. So therefore, our clients are going to become more and more diverse than they already are. That's one component, right? The second component is there's a lot of health disparities that exist, right, that affect particular racial groups. And it's not because of the race that they are. It's more because of how the barriers you systemically in our system are impacting these groups. So there's a lot of economic barriers. There's a lot of like different things that we can really go down a rabbit hole on, but there's health disparities that exist disproportionately to, you know, our the white background. So that's why we see more clients of color in healthcare. We see worse health outcomes in these groups. So that's two. And if we're working in healthcare, you're going to work with them more frequently. So that's a, another reason why diversity is important within our profession, because there's such a value for people, uh, minoritized backgrounds to work in our profession. There's studies that show that if you come from an underrepresented background, you're more likely to work with that particular background, the one that you're familiar with. I'm the perfect example of that. I work with predominantly Spanish-speaking families. Why? I speak Spanish. That's my lived background. And it's in the area that I grew up in, not necessarily Miami, but in Florida, where there's a higher proportion of Latinos. So that's something that you're, I'm seeing real time. I'm living it real time. And it's something that I think is so valuable to be able to provide services for a group that doesn't always have access to service. So there's language barriers, one. But even if you know you don't speak Spanish, but you will come from a Latino background, there's certain things that you understand about that cultural experience that creates bonds and creates an understanding, a mutual understanding that's beneficial in a therapeutic context. So that's something to think about. And there are studies that do show, and it's not just exclusive to OT in the healthcare world in general, that a provider of the same background typically will produce higher client satisfaction rates and better health outcomes. That's just what the research has shown us, you know, historically that that is what's going on. So those are just a couple of reasons why diversity is important. And if you're familiar with the background, you know better firsthand experience on how to work with and what the barriers exist for that particular population. So there's a doctor that I follow on Instagram to provide a perfect example of this, where he identifies as gay and his clients, like he loves to be able to disclose that about him to his patients. And he gets more of a clientele of that same background. And that's who the background he works with because he understands what the barriers are and what uh, specific issues are impacting yeah. that population. And it's it all comes from a place of understanding, of deep understanding, of going through that as your lived experience. There's nothing that can replace that understanding. So that's something that's very valuable in this context, right? So diversity is important <laughs> and not just racial diversity. That's an example yeah. of like non-racial diversity. Yeah. And just to kind of piggyback off of what you're saying, I think if you are of a background that is, you know, basically not minoritized, then Mm -hmm. you, that just shows you the importance of needing to hear out the stories and really, truly 
build relationships. And I'm just not talking on a superficial level, like mm-hmm. really listen and try to gain a deeper understanding about what is going on in a particular community or with a particular group of people. You know, I think it will make you a better clinician, a better student. And, you know, in the future, even if you are like in field work, just because you're able to relate, (laughs) you know, like if you're just unable to uh, like understand, then how, like, you're not going to care, which is not good. (laughs) I mean, that just comes like, I mean, that's just obvious. So I I just think it really just starts the bare minimum that anyone can do is just at least trying to understand, you know, like that's just a thousand percent. That's just the bare minimum. Like that's just touching the surface, you know? And so to anyone listening, if you, and if, you know, like just try to learn about different, you know, minoritized groups out there and, you know, and in terms of age too, right? Like I've gotten students that they've been very nervous about returning to school because of their age, you know? Mm -hmm. And so diversity, like you're saying, yeah, it comes in all sorts of different ways. And I think it can even benefit too from an academic standpoint, you know? Like, I'm curious to know, like, what was your like, what were your professors like, you know, like, what was your diversity, like, quote, like, quote, unquote, in terms of trying to, yeah, like, did you have a diverse group of professors or not really? Like, what was that like for you? And I know that you were in South Florida. So right. I, I don't know what that was like at Nova Southeastern, though, since I didn't right. attend there. It was better. I mean, it wasn't, I would say, ideal. I think that there was room for improvement, like, many universities where there's room for improvement to address equity within our admissions process and within our cohort, I would say maybe 10%, 15% of our cohort of 50 identified as non-white and that's just racial. And then, you know, there's other, there was some diversity with age and religion and things like that. But in terms of racial diversity, there wasn't as much as I would like. <laughs> but but that is something to think about. So why is that? It's not something that I feel like was intentional in the admissions process, where I feel like exactly. if we're trying to address diversity, you have to be intentional with it. There has to be, first off, we have a measurement, right? We do know that you know Asian, Black, Hispanic, American Indian, and Alaska Natives are the, the minority in this group, right? Why is that, you know, the university is located in South Florida? Why is it that, you know, actually we should be the majority or Hispanic Latino should be the majority in this group where, you know, that's where the predominant demographic is, right? So that's always a question to ask. Why do the demographics of this area not reflect the demographics of our cohort? What is going on here? What are the barriers of these people that are local to entering this university? Um, Is it financial? Because, you know, the cost of private school is very, very high. That's one barrier. Is it the GRE, standardized testing? I can go on, on and on and on why that should not be a requirement. Um, As OTs, especially in pediatrics, we know that a standardized test is not the true measure of a child's performance or a child's ability to function in their environment, right? So why is it that understanding that from an OT perspective, that we expect that from our, you know, profession, from people entering OT, there's a lot of like stuff that's like, hmm, we should think about. 
Uh, and many universities are doing away with that. So yeah, I'm they are. I, I'm USC, noticing that. There's a lot that they're focusing more on holistic admissions, which I'm like, yay, that's a win because we're starting to think about what really makes a good OT. What is something that we need to intentionally look for that produces better health outcomes for the people that we're serving? And that's one of the ways is like how we mirror the demographics of who we're serving and who our workforce is, who we're in, allowing to enter our profession. So you have to be intentional about it. And I'm starting to see progress in that area, not to the speed that, you know, obviously I would like, but there is progress with that area because we are seeing universities changing their admissions processes. So that's a win in my opinion. And those are just two areas we talked about in the first podcast where specific courses that are required for OT, we need to think about that. What really is the foundational knowledge that needs to be had for someone to be successful in OT school? Does it have to be a specific course offered at your university? Or is there another course that can be offered somewhere local at a community college at a lower cost that can cover, you know, the knowledge that the child, the, I always say child because I work with kids, that the student (laughs) person would need to enter occupational therapy school. So I'm always that person that's going to challenge the status quo. And I like to really look at the numbers and look at the data that we have. And for the future of, you know, Jedi work, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, we need to make it measurable. And that's what's something that I see is not happening where it's talk sessions. It's, oh, like this is the, the issue. This is that. But where are the measurements? Where's the data that we have that's showing that this is the barrier because there's plenty of that. There's plenty of disproportionality in everything and health outcomes and, you know, the people that we're allowing in our school. But then where's the data of like, what are we doing to address this and how are we improving? Where's the progress in numbers? And I think that that's how we need to think about it, you know, in a measurable way to show that we're improving our profession, that we're improving the diversity in our profession, improving equity. We're making a difference. So that's what I think that professional organizations, universities need to do. They need to organize themselves in that way and be very intentional with their model. And, you know, shout out to Duke University. And I didn't even go to Duke, but I I do some work with their mentorship program and their OTE program has changed their whole curriculum to be very client-centered, to be very focused on Jedi principles. And and it's amazing because their cohort, I think, is like 60% non-white and they're intentional about their demographic. And the curriculum is very, very much like, you know, based on these equity principles. So that's amazing. And, you know, they're kind of a leader in that way where other universities are starting to understand the importance of that. And they're starting to uh, realize that the way we've been doing things with standardized testing, like the GRE, with our admissions processes, with application costs, there's a lot of barriers that exist. And unfortunately, the cost of rising tuition is another thing that is happening where, you know, People of color have to having to take on a crazy amount of debt to be able to even get through graduate school. And then maybe if they're requiring an OTD, that's another, you know, yeah. year or two of school. So there's a lot of things that are into play and it's multifactorial, but there are many ways to intervene. So I'm curious to just dig into your thoughts and I'll put my thoughts out there too. Like, you know, what I'm noticing too that many universities are doing, which this is just my opinion, you know, like this is at the same time also my show. <laughs> so I'm just gonna <laughs> say but so I'm gonna put my opinion out there. I see many universities phasing phasing out the master's programs and then only giving students the yeah. OTD option. And to me, yeah. that is really, really harmful to students yep. of color. So I'm so glad that you just 
you said that. And if you are a university listening in, I hope that you just take this into consideration if you are really wanting to be in the forefront of creating change. And if you really are truly a believer in creating diversity, equity, and inclusion within your programs, like, you know, like the GRE and application costs are all things that are barriers to students of color getting in. So I just want to thank you for just saying that. And, you know, like there's so many ways that universities and, you know, programs can advocate for their students, right? Whether it's through you know, public funding. Like we actually, right. I, in, I interviewed this weekend, shout out to Barry University. That's another episode that's out, right? You can go back and listen to it. They have what's called the HRSA program and they got $3.2 million in scholarship, Damn. right? <laughs> like I was like, oh, Barry. So they got $3.2 million to help out their students. Like that is phenomenal that's you know what a lot (laughs) (laughs) you know like that is wild like that's what you know I think if you really and especially here in South Florida that's another South Florida school down here so kudos to them for trying to do what they can to break down those barriers so I just I'm so thankful for you sharing yeah um, show show the money that's what I like to say so like here's my opinion just my opinion is (laughs) you know since you said that I'm like a lot of universities are quick to say that they want to push for more research. They want to elevate the OT profession and they want to focus on research and all these things. I'm like, okay, well then make the OTD program the same amount of money as a master's program. Because if it's not about money, they should be the same cost, in my opinion. Because if yep. you really want to push for more research, more whatever the benefits are of the OTD, I'm not an expert in that area, so I'm not going to speak on that. But if the benefits of the OTD are really what they are or the yeah, the entry level occupational therapy doctor's degree, then why are they, why shouldn't it be the same cost, in my opinion? Like, why are you going to ask for more money for the OTD? You're going to do away with the master's, but then increase the cost as well. So to me, it's like, there's something right. that's and wrong so you're like, you're Yeah, you're saying that you want, you know, like you're a believer of diversity and equity and you want to like get rid of certain barriers, but then yet again, you're doing something. Right, it's another barrier that exists. (laughs) Do we need a a doctor's or do we really need a doctor's degree to practice occupational therapy? Like, is that something that is relevant? Like, do the bachelors of OT people or the masters of OT people, are they not sufficient? Are they not providing great care? Are they not able to do their jobs? And I think 99.9% of people are going to be like, no, like that is wrong. They are doing a great job. They're doing amazing. And I've learned so much from people that have their bachelors in OT and they've been working in the field for 30 years. So are you going to tell me that that clinician is not up to par? You know what I mean? Like to me, it's like, to be a clinician, I don't believe that you need an OTD. To be a researcher, you you will probably need those supports, but you have to understand like not everyone wants to to be a part of you know research. That's not their area to shine. Is like boots on the ground clinician and implementing what the researchers are doing. So that we need to have a balance of both. Yeah. And this is where I'm going to give a shout out to our national organization, AOTA. I am so glad that they at least kept it dual entry Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I remember that a while back. I don't even like maybe a few years back in 2019, prior to the pandemic, there was a huge thing about like by 2027, it's going to only be. Yes, I remember that. I do remember that. I was like, ah! (laughs) You know, and so... I'm so glad that they, you know, they got together with the representative assemblies and we pretty much, you know, 
know, for those of you listening, I like to think that we learned from physical therapy because we've seen yeah. how that has affected them. And what physical therapy, I've had professors from physical therapy tell me like, these are university professors, right? They're like, we thought that by moving to a DPT, right, that we were going to get more research. But what we found was that students didn't want to come in for research. They wanted to come into the program to be a clinician. Right. Go figure, right? Like, what? Right. Like, so just listen to the market, listen to what the students' needs are. And you'll, right. you know, like, listen, if you want more applicants, like, I, I don't know, like, that's just me. Like, right. <laughs> start thinking in terms of these ways of how you can get these barriers out and what you can do to really show um, students um, of color, since this is more specifically a conversation about students of color, but we've already established that there's tons of other ways that, you know, we, we are a diverse country and, uh, right. and just people, right? Like in terms of age and religion and socioeconomics. And so like, if you want right. a diverse uh, cohort, like you just need to really dig into your community. So, right. so I'm just glad that we did not go the mandate yeah. with a mandate. Now, yeah. Not to mention like the benefits of a post-professional doctorate's degree. So Think about the people that have worked in the field for however many years, and then they go for their doctors. Like that clinical experience is invaluable. Like when you're pursuing yeah. a doctor, because then when you do your capstone and like all the research that you're focusing on, you have some background experience to, to like kind of go off of like, well, I've seen this in the clinic and I see that there's a barrier. Right. Like it's a different level, I think. And I think that there's a value of offering that versus like an entry level. You only can enter this profession through a doctor's degree. And then like you're choosing to do your capstone on something that you may not have had like firsthand experience as a clinician doing. So I I really think that there's a benefit to having that post-professional available. And maybe in the future, I'll pursue that. Like that's something that's in my 10-year goals to get my post-professional OTD. So, you know, we are producing people that are wanting to do research is just on their time. And there should be an option that there should be an option is is just my overall uh, opinion on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because like, you know, as good as I think when you're young, right? Like you're, because a lot of when you're a student, typically, all right, the typical OT student, they're still in their twenties, right? Mm -hmm. So they're, they're younger, right? Typically speaking, but it's not that they don't want to do research or that they don't care about research. They just maybe want to do it later. So yeah. um, yeah. So like just keeping it, making it an option versus just having a one entry level or one post-professional, like it's just, it makes it Mm -hmm. better and more accessible to students. So, Mm -hmm. so I wanted to just also touch upon another question. And that is about the, give me a second here, because there is a organization, but the Coalition of Occupational Therapy and, you know, the diversity, COTAD. And I just want to give a little bit more info about what they do and how they advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and some of the things that they are doing. And I am wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. So since I graduated in 2018, I've been a part of COTAD. I've been a board member of the national or a national board member of COTAD. So the Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity are basically a group of occupational therapists with varying levels of you know education. We have doctorate's degree, PhDs, we have masters. I don't believe we have any people currently on that have like a bachelor's degree in LT, but 
basically just a group of occupational therapists that group together. And we also have some OTA members. So there's a national board member that I'm a part of. And then there's like members that join and pay a membership fee yearly to access our resources and our, and all the things that we offer through POTAD. But really our, our collective... And it's a nonprofit organization if I didn't mention that already. But our collective purpose is to advance these principles of justice, equity, diversity, inclusion within our profession because we notice that there is such a need for it. For a profession that is, you know, supposed to be holistic and to uh, have these principles, you know, we don't really necessarily always see it translated into practice. So our whole mission is to really just reduce those barriers, eliminate those barriers as much as we can and to promote a more equitable and diverse profession. For our clients, for our students, for our uh, professionals, we want to be able to create safe spaces and to be able to provide resources for those people that have been minoritized historically. Some of the ways that we do that is we have several pillars. So we have a mentorship program where you know we pair students and new grad practitioners with mentors of color or their particular background. We try to match it up like that. It doesn't always work out 100%, but you know most of the time we try to you know, meet the needs of the mentee with someone that has a particular background that they're either interested in or, you know, share a lived experience with. That's one way. We also have COTAD education. So we provide educational resources and meetings for the community. And we offer that. We have, you know, our social media. We do a lot of work in terms of partnering with different organizations like the MDI network and AOTA. We do things like that. So be able to communicate what some of the barriers are and how we can dismantle some of the systemic barriers that exist. We have COTED chapters. So we have chapters within organizations at universities to be able to provide safe spaces for students of various backgrounds and to actually advance these principles within curriculum. So those are some ways that we've been doing it, you know, through COTAD and there's more to come, you know, it's a growing organization. It was grassroots and we're starting to advance and get more funding. We provide scholarships for students. We've worked with like different organizations, like I kind of mentioned before, but there's a lot of work that we do. Me personally, I do a lot of like guest speaking roles. So I've been able to actually talk at FIU and, and other universities talking about how to integrate like DEI work into the profession. And a lot of us kind of partner in different ways to to get funding, to do things at our conferences and things like that. So there's more to come, but that's just a short intro in, into COTAD. But students, I, I'd like you to know that you can join COTAD as a member. We have a student membership rate. If you're in school for OT, you can join as well. And if you're a current practitioner, we have a membership fee that you can join and access our resources that we have. So that's just a little bit of information about COTAD. I wanted to make sure that it was touched upon just because I think that it's just really important for students that want to be able to have access to these safe spaces or just be able to get mentorship with somebody mm-hmm. from this, a similar background that they know about it, right? right? So that's why I wanted to definitely touch upon it. So please go check that out and you can reach out to Michelle too if mm-hmm. you have more questions about it and she can guide you. But I think it's a wonderful experience. And I think that as a pre-OT, and especially if you're a student of color, you should be aware that this at least does exist. And that if used correctly, it could be a very valuable resource and connection and create some very valuable connections for you. So Mm -hmm. definitely keep COTAD in the back of your mind. And so I don't know if there's anything else that you want to add to that. No, I think, you know, I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, we talk about diversity and all these things, but I also like to mention that 
even if you're not from one of these backgrounds, right? Let's say, you know, you are, you know, you're white or you're part of the majority of the experience. Like I also like to like also say that that doesn't mean you're not going to be a great clinician and you can't provide great services to people that don't mirror that background, right? That your background. So that's something that I always like to talk about because you know, in this world, we need accomplices. Like we talked about having allies right before, but we need accomplices. We need people to advance all of the work that we're doing as well. And, you know, through COTAB, I've worked with amazing accomplices like this, where they are doing the work. They are, you know, you can't do better until you know better, right? So it's taking that step forward and always learning and being open to learning and not shutting out these experiences where I oftentimes see people like, Ooh, I don't feel comfortable. I don't understand their background very much. Or like, Ooh, I don't feel comfortable treating this family because you know, I don't speak Spanish or I just don't understand their background where we need to shift that mindset to more like a culturally humble, you know, culturally responsive way so that we're opening ourselves up. We're asking those questions like, what is meaningful to you? Like, what is something from your culture that you feel like we should be addressing in therapy? Is there something that I can do better to best address your needs? Is there barriers that exist right now for you that I can help you with? Asking those questions. And sometimes it can feel a little uncomfortable because it's something that we don't know about, but that is a true model of how we need to be practicing as OTs because it's really coming from this humble place, this this way to serve versus like, this is how I've always done it. This is what I do for all everybody. This is like what you need to do and not even take into consideration if that's even feasible for this family or for this client. I see it way too often where we are prescribing home exercise programs. We're doing, oh, get this toy, get that. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm thinking pediatric, but yeah, this, no, but you're this. right. We're not taking into account like their lived experience. What are their finances? What are like, there's so many ways to think about their health, but is it feasible for them? Do they have transportation to get to this clinic? Do they have access to what you're recommending to a nutritionist, to a whatever a GI doctor? Can Do they have insurance? You have to think about all those things. And uh, unfortunately, like I think, we don't see enough of that, that holistic look, you know, we can get taught it in school, but I think along the way, and and I don't blame too many therapists because I know there's so many things that with our healthcare system that could be done better, but we can't lose sight of that. Uh, You know, especially it's integral to who we are as therapists. We're that bridge, we're that connection between that medical model to real life. What is a real life? Like don't lose that part because that's what makes us important and and relevant. And, I'm so glad that you said that. I'll just share like this one quick story just so, um, and just to kind of share, I guess, a time that I, a recent time this week, you know, and I have a particular kiddo that is always late to the therapy session. And I wasn't being, it's not that I was asking like from a judgmental standpoint, I really wasn't, right? But it's just like, man, like I was wondering, right? It's It was really coming from the perspective of what is going on that they are late and me trying to see if there's something going on. And then, Thankfully, the other OT that works there that also sees the child every now and then and whatnot, she was the one that told me, hey, just FYI, this particular child's mother has been struggling with uh, just getting up in the morning with everything that is going on in life. You know, Mm -hmm. like she it's a struggle for her and she does not have the energy, you know, once that was like, once I saw that, I was like, that makes sense. You know what I mean? And I was able to just empathize and we, you know, like we were able to just move forward. And yeah, like so many times it's like, oh, well, yeah, take your kid to a park, you know, but then 
yeah, take your kid to a park and uh, go, go play with them, do the homework with the child more, read with the child. And all that stuff is great, but not everybody does. I've had parents just straight up tell me, I work all day. I'm a single mother. Yeah. When in survival expect, mode. Yeah. When do you expect me to do this? You know, and yeah. so the more questions you ask, the more you'll be able to just understand and the more you'll be able to, you know, see maybe how you can help them in maybe yeah. in a different way. The right? how question. How yeah. can we make this happen? How yeah. can we help yeah. you? How can we do some of the stress that you're feeling? There's so many ways. Yeah. And an example, like maybe that mom can't make it to the clinic three times a week or whatever. So telehealth has been something that has been sort of a blessing in some ways. And in my practice, because I find that a lot of parents, especially if they have twins or they have a lot yeah. of kids or the barriers or they're working all the time. Telehealth has been a great way for me to deliver services, to be able to provide that yeah. education and that weekly meetup with reducing their transportation costs, reducing their stress in their daily life, and but still giving them quality services through like a coaching model. So right. always being open to different ways to do things is is critical to our practice and we can get complacent and for survival we can get in this like rut of like doing the same thing over and over again but the value of what we do is not in that rut it's in those moments of clarity where we're like oh this is what they need oh like how can i help you do this like that is what really exemplifies how we should be practicing yeah preach (laughs) <laughs> like, like, and I just really hope that, you know, as you guys enter this profession, if you're a pre-OT or current student listening, that you hold on to the things that we're talking about and that, yeah, like just hold on to the things that you're learning in school because it is harder, I think, in everyday practice. And then as time just goes on, it's almost like it's just you get, I guess, into the rut and into the routine of things, but don't lose the fact that you're working with people, you know, and mm-hmm. these people have real life situations and real life issues. So, and yeah. we're here to, you know, basically help them throughout like these issues so they can reach their goals, right? Mm-hmm. And do the things that they want to do and need to do, which is what we stand for as a profession, right? So don't lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So any other last words of wisdom before we log off? I really just want to thank you again for being on with us and taking this time. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, in terms of words of wisdom, kind of like the last one we did in the last podcast, I, I really want everyone walking away. If you're listening to this is to really never underestimate your power and underestimate your lived experience and how you can use that to use it to your advantage. You know, a lot of times if you're a person of color, you're kind of like, Oh, well, I came from this background. Like I, I came from a house where, you know, we didn't have a lot of money or I had a lot of, you know, disadvantages in life and things like that. You can use that as a superpower to help you understand all of those people that you're working with. You know, you have a particular lived experience, use that to help others that were in that situation or are currently in that situation and serve as like, you know, a representation of like moving beyond like the circumstances that you were given to start with. So that's something that, you know, I stand for, you know, I I truly embrace my lived experience. It hasn't always been easy, but it's something that really helps me empathize and at a whole nother level with all of my clients and the families that represent a similar background. So, you know, think of it as a superpower and, and use it for good. Thank you again, Michelle. And we will, you know, be like, go ahead and give yourself a shout out. I want people to know where they can find you, by the way. Like, yeah. So 
the Instagram or any web pages that you have so they can, you know, check out the cool things that you're doing. You are so amazing and you're doing so many great things for our local community here in South Florida and even mm-hmm. on a grander scale by uh, being an influencer with students across the country. So, mm-hmm. oh, thank so you. I, I really appreciate that. You know, I, I didn't really set out to do this, like you say, influencer life. I, I'm still haven't come to terms with that term. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I'm just a person like posting about my life on Instagram. So that's what I think. A person documenting her journey on Instagram and just trying to help people along the way. That's what I say. So, so, uh, so my Instagram handle is Michelle. So M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E underscore O-T. That's my, you know, area that I'm always on. You can reach me there. I provide like, you know, different services through there, like consultation and, and mentorship. But I also have a page called New Play Therapy. So N-E-U-P-L-A-Y Therapy. And that's where, you know, I post more of like my OT pediatric related content, as well as my website, www.michelledot.com. And that's where, you know, I post resources for students and parents. And, and I post some of my work as well. So those three areas, you can definitely reach me. And I'm excited to hear from anyone. I'm, I try to make myself as available as I, you know, as I can within certain boundaries. So, you know, if I can help anyone, just let me know. All right. Well, thank you again, Michelle. Thank you so much. It's been great. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me and taking time out of your day to listen. We hope that this has been of value to you and will get you one step closer towards becoming the OT that you want to be. One of the biggest problems I see is that pre-OTs They try to do things alone. They do things in isolation and the connections that they have are minimal for many reasons. But we are changing that here at OT Genius and focusing instead on building a community for pre-OTs for them to have their first OT family and meet other pre-OTs, current OT students and clinicians. To be a part of that awesome community, you can subscribe to our membership by going to otgenius.com. Just go to the tab Get Me Into OT School on the homepage and you can join our awesome community there. You can also find our social medias and ways to get in touch with us on the website. So thank you again and see you in the next one.